0: Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Koslowitz, clinical psychologist, parenting educator, and post-traumatic parent. Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast, where we learn to provide our children with a healthy childhood, even if ours was anything but. Or maybe we had a wonderful childhood, but recent events in our lives have left us reeling. Let's face it, after 2020, we're all post-traumatic parents now. Welcome! Welcome! Welcome to the Post-Traumatic Parenting Podcast. Today's episode is based off a DM and email correspondence with a Post-Traumatic Parenting community member. This conversation started in our Instagram subscription group, which you can find if you check out Dr. Kozl at Psychology on Instagram. And what this listener asked and said which I think is so universal to post-traumatic parents, is that she feels a sense of incredible sadness because as she's reading more about cycle breaking and post-traumatic parenting and learning about the importance of attachment, she realizes how she failed her older children and she feels incredibly sad that she is their attachment figure. She is aware of how not having proper attachment figures impacted her in her childhood. And this is something that she feels she's going to have to do a lifetime's worth of psychotherapy and journaling and inner child work to even process. But meanwhile, she has children and she is their attachment figure. And as she puts it, she lacks the gene for attachment. So I think it is true. I wanna first pause and just sit with that because this is so common to post-traumatic parents, this sensation of, I lack the gene for attachment. How can I possibly provide attachment? I didn't experience it. And we do know that attachment theory tells us that when we experience good attachment, proper attachment, it provides us with an internal working model And part of that internal working model is also how to provide attachment. We're going to get into what an internal working model is as we go through this episode. But that sensation of, I am so sad for my kids because I am their primary attachment figure. I'm it, right? And I haven't been doing it properly. And even if I would want to, I don't know how, is so common to post-traumatic parents. So if you've experienced that, I want you to take a moment, think about that, perhaps voice note to yourself that you'd like to journal about this. Perhaps this is something you need to mourn, something you need to think hard about. And I also want to point out that no matter what stage our children are at, attachment can be repaired. And this episode is going to be a deep dive into attachment theory so that we can learn what it is. More importantly, what it isn't, because I think we sometimes give attachment and this idea that a parent who experienced good attachment and can just provide secure attachment to their children, we sort of give it magical, mystical powers. Like it's something totally beyond us. If only we were that mom, we see perhaps some parent in the park sharing a moment of joy and connection and delight with their children. And of course, delight is the hallmark of good attachment. And we think, oh, if only that could be me, that will never be me. And sometimes we're only seeing that snapshot. We're seeing what someone chooses to post on Instagram. We're seeing some cute TikTok. We're seeing somebody, you know, in the park, but we don't know them and we don't know their struggles. And sometimes we forget that, yeah, it's true. Attachment's important. Secure attachment's important. It's much easier to provide secure attachment if we experienced it. And there's a flip side to attachment, which is earned security. We can repair attachment no matter what stage we're in, no matter what stage our children are in, we can do that. It's gonna be more work. It would be easier if it was automatic, but the flip side of attachment is earned security. Attachment absolutely can be repaired. So if you've been listening to attachment based information, if you've been following that kind of content, if you've been thinking about cycle breaking and learning about attachment and feeling like this is so huge, I'll never be able to do this. Here's where I want to start this episode. Attachment can and should be repaired. And the fact that you're listening to this means you have the capacity within yourself to repair attachment with your current children, with your inner child, perhaps with attachment figures from childhood, if that's important to you. But attachment itself absolutely is not this mystical, magical thing. Anything we can understand, we can break down into its component ingredients. Any component ingredients that we can fully understand, we can then reproduce. So of course we can repair attachment. So let's listen to this episode in the spirit of let's understand attachment theory from a lens of trauma, from a lens of post-traumatic parenting, and most importantly, from a lens of attachment is something I want to understand so that I can repair it. Because everything can be repairable if we know how to repair So listen to this episode in the spirit, not of forget it. I'm terrible at attachment. My poor kids, I didn't give it to them. I hope I earned enough money to provide them therapy one day, but instead with the can do attitude of as difficult as this is, attachment is repairable. I can provide earned security if I didn't provide natural security in their earliest years. So let's listen to the episode in that spirit. And remember, if you're a member of the post-traumatic parenting community and you have a burning question like this, please DM me. You can find me on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. You can find me on Threads and we can continue this conversation. In this counter-shaming way that we're talking about attachment, I also want to point out that attachment is infinitely repairable. We know that good attachment provides proper attachment, provides a child with a sense of security, right? And when we talk about someone like, oh, he's so insecure, we're really pulling on attachment research and it sort of has entered into the popular vernacular where people use it as an adjective to describe somebody, right? She's such a secure person. He's so insecure, The flip side of security is earned security. So we can have security one of two ways. We can have secure attachment, and therefore we learn certain lessons about ourselves, about the world, about relationships that will stand us in good stead throughout life. And we can also not learn those lessons for whatever reason in childhood and then fix that and attain earned security, a sense that. Although the world seemed threatening to me as a child, although as a child, when I tried new things, I failed at them. I was mocked. I wasn't supported. I was shamed or blamed. I now know that actually the world is not as scary as I thought that actually it can be pretty safe. I now know that when I try and I fail, there are some upsides to that. For example, I can try and fail and fail well and fail incrementally upwards until I develop that skill. That just because I thought of myself as a loser as a child and criticism, shame and blame happened a lot, does not mean that I am a loser, right? It means that that's a lesson I learned. I can unlearn that lesson and I can learn a new lesson. I can learn to celebrate my failures and be like, yay me. I tried. That is what earned security looks like. And we can experience earned security through psychotherapy, where we learn about our attachment patterns. We learn why they didn't work for us. We learn what's distorted in our internal working model. And then we learn how to speak to ourselves more kindly. We can be our own attachment figure, right? And we make ourselves into a much more secure person. Sometimes you have somebody with insecure or dismissive or avoidant attachment who marries someone who's incredibly secure, but also incredibly emotionally attuned and intuitive. And that person is such a secure adult attachment figure as a romantic partner that the partner, especially if they're willing to work on it and they want to develop these competencies, the partner can then become earned secure. So again, when we're thinking about everything that we're saying about attachment, if we feel like there are some attachment experiences that I didn't do a perfect job of providing to my children, and let's mark that word perfect. That's a very post-traumatic parenting word. When we think about parenting, and perfect in the same sentence. So mark yourself thinking about that, the association of those two words. I didn't do that job that I would have liked to do. All right, I can repair attachment. My kid and I can repair attachment. My child can develop earned security. But let's understand something about the attachment system and something about the trauma system in our brains. The attachment system is, underneath everything else, a survival system, right? Because if you think about it, A newborn, you know, bunny, right? Let's imagine that scene in the Bambi movie where all the animals are fleeing a forest fire, right? Or think of any forest scene, right? A newborn bunny is born and there's a fire. Pretty quickly after birth, that bunny can run away from danger. A newborn horse within a day or two can stand on its own feet and can run away from danger, right? So therefore... Animals have less of an intense attachment bond than we do. They still have intense attachment bonds. There's a lot of evidences of attachment bonds in nature because a parent's drive is to keep their child alive, right? But a newborn baby is essentially helpless for the first two, five years of its life, right? Right. If there was a forest fire in my town, my five-year-old would not be able to get into a car and drive away. They may be able to run better than a five-month-old, right? So that to a certain extent, they can save themselves. But a five-year-old horse is not a child anymore. It will run away with its full adult capacity, right? So the attachment system is a survival system. Trauma, our capacity to be traumatized is a survival system, right? Trauma warns us that was bad that felt really unsafe, whether psychologically unsafe, like being bullied, or physically unsafe, like being in a car accident or being in a shooting, right? So trauma tells us that was unsafe, that will threaten my survival, I better take steps to make sure I'm not in that position again. The thing about survival systems, all survival systems, is they're inherently uncomfortable, unpleasant, even noxious. Think about all of the fail-safes we have to keep people alive and how annoying and intrusive they are. Right? When we turn on the gas in our house, they added an odor, they added to gas, natural gas is a odorless substance, but it can kill you, right? So therefore, they added a really foul smelling addition to gas. So that if you turn on the burner and the flame doesn't go on, very quickly you'll be like, oh my gosh, what's that bad smell? Oh, oh my gosh, there's gas going into this house and it's dangerous. Let's quickly open the windows. Let's shut that flame. Oh my gosh, right? Let's shut that switch so that the flame goes off or at least that the gas doesn't continue to be releasing into the room, right? Think of a fire alarm. A fire alarm is not this pleasant melodic tone that says, danger, you might want to get up now. There's a fire Because that would keep us asleep. A fire alarm should be a really loud, noxious, annoying sound. That beeping sound that we get when we get in the car and we don't put on our seatbelt. And it's like, beep, 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 right? That's annoying. That sound is meant to annoy us so that we remember to put on our seatbelts. Anything based in survival has a distress component. When you hear a baby crying and the hair on the back of your neck rises and and like, oh my gosh, that sound, it needs to stop, right? The reason you're feeling that is not because you're a bad mother. I've had so many mothers say this, like, I can't tolerate the sound of my baby's crying. I have this baby. The doctor says it's colic. He just cries and cries and cries. I can't put him down. I'm losing my mind. I'm such a bad mother. No, that's your attachment system doing its job. That baby needs to stay alive. So your brain and that baby's brain work in sync so that that noxious sound of the baby just crying and crying and crying that you're just not feeling able to tolerate, that's his attachment system kind of meshing and working together with your attachment system It's meant to do that because what if the baby would be crying and it would be dangerous, right? The baby's crying because, I don't know, a kidnapper is about to grab the kid and it's an unfamiliar face so the baby bursts into tears. The baby's in pain because there's a fire. Again, we're, we're saying horrible things, but we're talking about survival. That attachment system is meant to get our attention and usually what gets our attention are not pleasant, lovely, happy things. What gets our attention are annoying, noxious sounds. So if you're feeling burnt out from your baby's crying, if it like sets your teeth on edge, number one, please speak to your medical professional. Make sure that you're not undergoing the extremely normal postpartum depression or postpartum reactions that can be helped with rebalancing your hormones just a bit. Okay, so number one, definitely get that checked out because it could be that there is a hormonal fix, right? There are even now medications that directly target postpartum depression without larger things like they don't have, you don't have to necessarily take an antidepressant. There are other medications available. So definitely get that checked out. Definitely alert your parenting partner, your support system. Like this is getting a bit much for me. I'm going to need more support because this particular baby is very high needs. I'm feeling very depleted. There's no shame in that. Babies are a lot of work. People say that labor ends when you give birth to the baby. <laughs> in some ways, labor, like the physical labor of giving birth is the easiest part i you know hate to tell anyone who's done like i've done 36 hour labors but that's sometimes the least painful part it's a lot of very hard work to adjust to a new baby but feeling on edge because the baby's crying a lot is not a sign that you don't know how to provide good attachment it's a sign of the attachment system working the attachment system is meant to get your attention so The baby and the mother, right, are this one unit where the baby is crying. And I'm saying the mother, but of course, dad can also be an attachment figure. There should be multiple attachment figures. Babies are not, you know, human babies are not baby ducklings who only imprint on one caregiver, right? We can have many stable, supportive caregivers, but that's for a little bit later in this installment. So what are the three functions of the attachment system that John Bowlby really talked about? He talked about proximity maintenance. I want to remain close to my mom. And again, I'm saying mom, but I mean attachment figure. It's just that generally when people call me and say things like I can't provide good attachment when my baby cries, I get so on edge. It's usually mom. So proximity maintenance, staying close to mom, safe haven and secure base. So Number one, I want to stay close to her. I want to know, is she attentive? Is she paying attention? Is she noticing? Is she keeping me safe? Is she around, right? Is she here? And is she also mentally here? Then I want to know, is she a secure base? Can I stay with her, feel safe, and then use her as a launching pad To go out and explore the world, knowing that when the world gets a little scary or when the world gets a little much, I can come back to her and return to her. Right. So she's my launch pad, but she's also my nest. Right. So I jump out of the nest and then I come back into the nest. I go to school. I come home. I run around on the playground. I come back to mom for my snack, for my hug, for my reassurance. When I'm on the sliding pad and I say and I, and I make a noise, I try to get her attention. She looks over at me and she gives me a thumbs up and she's like, yeah, you're going down the slide. Right. She's paying attention. She's close by. And then she is safe haven. Let's say I'm on that slide and I fall off and I scrape my knee. Does mommy pay attention, come running over, pick me up, you know, wash off my boo boo, put a little bandaid on it, give it a kiss and say, oh, you fell off the slide. So she's reflecting my experience back to me. She's providing a vocabulary for what just happened. Oh, your knee hurts. That's okay. We're going to wash it off. We're going to band-aid it. And then again, is she that safe haven? I can sit on her lap for a while, sort of regain my bearings, wait until I feel tempted to venture out again, and then venture forth onto the playground again to see if I want to try the slide again. So those are the three main functions of the attachment system, and they're all based on survival. Because if mom's not paying attention, bad things can happen. If mom's not there when I fall down at the playground, I could get really hurt, right? If I don't have somebody to come back to, if I don't have somebody to embrace me, if I don't have like that launch pad and that comfort place, I may not be willing to venture out again. So those are the jobs that the attachment figure provides. When the attachment figure has to leave, isn't available for whatever reason. The baby naturally and normally engages in searching, right? Where's mom? Where's mom? I'm looking around for her. And then eventually we'll engage in what we call protest behavior, right? The baby cries. The baby says, no, I don't want to go to kindergarten. I want to stay home, right? The child naturally is going to protest a separation from their attachment figure because it feels really good to be close to my attachment figure. Again, protest behavior in and of itself is not pathological. I've seen a lot of people post about the back-to-school period and sort of pathologize insecure children. They're calling insecure children who are not like leaving their parents' side. I want to make something incredibly clear. It's really difficult to posit anything about a child's eventual attachment and their eventual internal working model based on any one sample of their behavior. A child can be clingy at the school gate, not because they don't have secure attachment. They could have wonderfully secure attachment, but they're neurodiverse. It's too loud and stimulating. It's too sensory. Something has happened in the family recently, like there's a new baby at home and the child just really has too many changes to cope with right now. The teacher seems scary. There's a rough kid in the class and they have a like more inhibited temperament where they just are looking at this exuberant child and it's too much, too loud, too big, too fast. Sounds like trauma, right? It's too much and they don't want to leave. When you see like TikTok videos of somebody like Videoing another person's child clinging to their parent, and then they're positing about that kid's attachment, it's absolutely meaningless. You don't know anything about this child's life. And I can tell you that some very clingy children who were inhibited and shy and hesitant had very good attachment. And you can see that in their adulthood and how secure they are. The childhood behavior is not such an indicator of attachment adult behavior is now that doesn't mean that we don't want to pay a lot of attention to attachment of course we do we want to be constantly thinking with attachment as our lens how do i make this child feel secure how do i have give them a sense of felt attachment felt security in the day and there are so many little things we can do right you can write a little love note in your kids lunch you can if your kids in like that, kinderg- those kindergartens that have cameras where the parents can check in, you can check in and write a little note to yourself to remind yourself, I noticed you were playing with that Red ball That looked really fun. Tell me about that, right? You can show them that you're taking an interest in their life. You're taking an interest in their day. You can have that focused time where you're simply enjoying being in each other's company. There are many things that we're going to get to what we can do to increase a sense of felt security in our children. But I'd be very cautious about positing a linear connection between seeing a child be clingy and saying something about their attachment. Certainly for us, we definitely do not want to say, oh my gosh, I did it wrong. My kid's clingy the first day of kindergarten. I She's insecure. It's my fault, right? The behavior of the child does not necessarily reflect anything about attachment. Behavior of an adult can. So if that child is 25, We can then talk about where attachment worked and didn't work. But if the child is five, we really can't. So let's just be very cautious and let's definitely shut down that judgmental lens from other people because other people do not know your parenting and your life. Let's remember some of the origins of attachment theory, right? So we had John Bowlby in the 50s, right? And John Bowlby was working in a child psychoanalysis clinic, He was actually a direct supervisee of Melanie Klein, who was one of the big object relations people. And Bowlby would see children who had to be separated from their mother. And he would see how they would engage in what he called searching behavior. And then it would turn into despair, where they're looking and looking and looking and looking for their mom. And remember, we're going to the days where children were put in hospital wards for like infections, diseases that we now have. Cures for, right? This was in like pre antibiotic days or in the early antibiotic days. So there were certain, certainly pre certain vaccinations, right? So there were certain, you know, diseases that would like tear through a large swath of children. And there was nothing to do but put them in these like isolation wards where they'd be like separated from their parents for months and months and months on end. And at first, let's say you have an 18-month-old child and he contracts something like tuberculosis. He contracts something. He has has to have a surgery. And then because they're so afraid of infection, he's in this ward. At first, he's searching for his mother. He's looking around like, where's my mommy? I need my mommy. Is she near me? This is really scary. I'm crying. My mommy's not coming. These weird nurses are coming and they're giving me a bottle. But where's my mommy? And after the despair, after the, the searching and the frantic anxiety comes the despair. There's a really interesting anecdote that I learned about in graduate school where Bowlby was doing psychoanalysis with this boy and his mother. The mother was considered like to be like at risk for harming her child because she had had a disadvantaged life and she was considered, you know, like a low class mother in the parlance of that day she had lived a very high risk lifestyle. There wasn't a lot of money there. There weren't a lot of supportive partners. So Bowlby was working with this mother and this child. And then the mother got sent away for some reason. Maybe she went to prison. Maybe she went to the hospital. I don't remember. And he went to Melanie Klein and he told her, you know, this child is experiencing distress at the separation from the mother. And Melanie Klein kind of poo pooted it and said, no, it's only the Mental representation of the mother, right? The object relations. It doesn't matter whether he actually is with his actual mother or not. It's his mental representation of the mother that's the problem. And Bowlby's looking at this at the same time, Harlow's research on the monkeys, a famous monkey experiment where Harlow pointed out that he had these orphaned monkeys and he created these like fake mothers. One was made out of wire hangers, but it was holding a bottle, and one was made out of cuddly like terry cloth fabric and also holding a bottle but sometimes just holding an empty bottle and the monkeys would return to the cuddly terry cloth model of a mother and not to the wire one even though the wire one had a bottle of milk like the wire one actually held the nutrient you needed and harlow posited from that that there's a psychological nutrient that we need of attachment and comfort and being held and being loved and being treated with softness that is just as important as the bottle of milk, right? So Bulby's reading this research and he's, you know, undergoing this supervision and psychoanalysis with Melanie Klein. And he's thinking, like, something's not adding up here. I think this baby is missing its actual mother, right? This little boy wants his actual mother. Forget the mental representation of the mother. The mental representation of the mother is important but the mother herself is pretty important too, right? Something that I think nowadays we totally get and we wouldn't, you know, have any argument with. So, because remember, our attachment figure, our actual attachment figure, not our fantasy attachment figure, is where we learn what can I expect from the significant others in my life? How will powerful people treat me? Right? How will the world treat me when I make a mistake? What happens when I venture out and explore, will someone comfort me if something goes wrong? These are very important questions. It forms what we call a mental model. That's what Bowlby called it, a mental model that creates a pattern in the brain. And eventually that becomes our internal working model of ourselves, of relationships, of the world. Is the world safe? Is the world not safe? Am I lovable? When I'm sad, will someone come? Will people let me down? What happens when I'm vulnerable? And he really had this break with classical psychoanalysis, with Freud, with Klein, with the object relations, with the ego psychologist saying that it's not just the internal fantasied attachment to mental representations, it's the actual mom. Now, mental representations become important in adulthood, but in the moment, the four-year-old is not missing the mental representation of his mom. He's missing actual mom. So if the answers are yes, Someone will come when I'm sad. If I make a mistake, somebody will be there and be supportive. Someone will comfort me when I'm scared. When I need someone, they'll be there. Am I lovable? Yes, you are lovable. That's what creates security. So if the robber, the dog, the fire, the beer comes, the baby can shut down that noxious survival system, right? That doesn't feel good. That hypervigilance, the cortisol, the adrenaline, I can shut that down because, oh, sigh of relief mommy's here it's okay mommy came and she'll take care of me she'll figure out what to do she knows what's safe she knows what's dangerous she knows how to handle this so those noxious signals don't have to keep going off in my brain because mommy's here now such a sensation of relief feels so good right think about trauma now from that same lens, right? We think of something that's traumatic as something that's too big for our brain to metabolize. It's too much. It's too loud. It's too fast. It's too overwhelming. There's too much going on, right? And can I handle it or can I not handle it? Because if I'm alone with my reactions to it, as so many trauma researchers have said, then that's gonna be encoded very differently as if somebody was there to support me through it. It's not the experience, right? It's our experience of the experience that matters. So what if mommy doesn't come, right? So the survival mode of our brain gets activated because then the baby decides, obviously babies are not thinking this out in actual linear words, but the baby says, yikes, I have to keep myself alive. This is a very very scary thought this is the origin of the trauma response right the origin of the trauma response is i have to keep myself alive and like i said it's noxious because anything that's related to survival is unpleasant because it needs to get our attention so there's two options mommy doesn't come and she never comes Maybe mommy is even mean when she comes, right? So mommy has a hangover and I'm crying and crying and crying because my diaper is really wet and really dirty and I'm getting an infection and it feels really uncomfortable. And I've been crying and crying for hours and mommy finally comes and she yells at me because I woke her up and I'm such an annoying kid and how can I do that? And she finally changes my diaper, but she's yelling and cursing the whole time. So what's going to happen? I am going to develop insecure, avoidant attachment. I'm going to develop dismissive attachment, right? What I'm going to develop is this attachment where, like, mommy doesn't come, well, who needs her anyway, right? She's so stupid, right? Like, it's just dumb to have a mommy at all. I can handle myself. Who cares if I have a rash? I'm tough. It's all up to me. But also, now we're going to get back into some of the object relations theorists also, inherent in that is the thought that if only I were a more lovable baby, if only there was something winning and charming about me, then mommy really would come. Because Fearbearn is the object relations theorist who said that one of the tricks a baby's brain plays is the baby must believe that the parents are all good and that they are all bad. The way he put it is it's better to live as a sinner in a world of angels than to be a saint in a world of demons, meaning for the sake of me feeling like the world is not so overwhelmingly threatening that I can't survive in it, it's much easier for me to believe mom's good. She's right. I'm a really annoying, unattractive, yucky baby. When I'm crying so much, I'm waking her up and she's so wonderful. She deserves her beauty sleep. I'm doing something terrible by disturbing her, right? I don't need her anyway. And it's all my fault because that feels safer than mom's not a very good mom. Mom's kind of checked out. It's not okay the way mom's treating me and I'm really good, right? It feels safer to believe that I don't even need a mom anyway. I'll survive. I'm tough. And it's all my fault, right? That feels a lot safer. So for now, the way the baby's brain also works is the baby is going to make a decision. For now, I will stay with this caregiver because it's not like there's other applicants for the job, right? Like she's the only game in town. But when I grow up, at best, we'll have a distant or lukewarm relationship. At worst, we're not going to have a relationship at all, right? I'll, I'll stick around now. But honestly, I don't know that this whole relationship thing is for me. I don't know that any relationships are for me. I definitely don't know that a relationship with her is for me. For now, I'll stick around because she's the only game in town. Babies and children don't have much agency or choice, but adults do. So that kind of dismissive attachment of like, mom's not coming and that's really horrible, but it's all my fault and who needs her anyway? is the worst case scenario, right? It's the hardest to repair in psychotherapy and it's the most damaging to the child, even if the child comes across as very resilient. We hear this all the time, right? For those of us who are post-traumatic parents who had traumas that occurred in our childhood, we hear how resilient we are and how driven we are and how capable we are. Sure, trauma has a way of doing that, right? Trauma has a way of artificially maturing us and making us feel, Feel like we have to be hyper independent and we have to manage the world ourselves because our attachment system isn't going to do that for us. So, sure, we can look, that child can even look very resilient, but that's not so much resilience as it is hyper independence and the need to take charge of our own survival at a very young age. But there's other options, right? Maybe mommy sometimes comes and sometimes she's nice and sometimes she's mean and sometimes she doesn't come at all and it's just not predictable it's not really about me like she comes when she's being observed when other people are around but she's you know right now she's sober and then sometimes she doesn't come that is anxious attachment right sometimes she comes and she's Predictable and loving and kind. Sometimes she doesn't come. Sometimes when she comes, she's preoccupied with other things. I never know what's going to happen here. That's insecure. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to double down on trying to get that yummy, kind, safe, nurturing version of mommy to come. So, I'm going to start being clingy. I'm going to protest even routine separations. The world doesn't feel safe. My caregiver. I can't count on her to be available and responsive when I need them. Sometimes she's available and responsive. Sometimes she isn't. I can't quite figure out the rhyme and reason and the predictability of when. So I'm going to keep activating the attachment system because I have to. That's anxious attachment, right? And like I said, the behavior of any one child on any one time doesn't tell us anything about attachment. The clinky kid on the first day of kindergarten may have nothing to do with attachment at all. The adult partner who has a very hard time tolerating routine separations, who needs a lot of reassurance from a partner, that might have something to do with attachment. But in childhood, we cannot posit anything. So here are the questions. Is the world safe? Can I count on my caregiver to be available and responsive when I need my caregiver? Can I count on my caregiver to remain close, to be that safe haven, to be that secure base? If the answer is yes, I'm going to have secure attachment. If the answer is no, I'm going to have avoidant attachment. If the answer is no, and when they come, they're abusive, I'm going to have dismissive attachment, avoidant, dismissive. And if the answer is maybe, I'm going to have insecure attachment. And remember, if the answer is please keep my caregivers far away from me, as far away from me as you possibly can, then I'm going to have that dismissive, avoidant attachment because as Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson say so eloquently in their book, I think it's the book, The Power of Showing Up. If you want to be the safe haven for your child, you cannot also be the storm. So if you're that storm, you're the one who's terrifying, you're the one who's mean, you slap the kid for having a dirty diaper, right? Then you're the safe haven right now. You're the safe harbor right now simply because you're the only attachment figure in town. They don't have a choice. So that child is still going to cry for you sometimes, but that's the worst form of attachment. I think one of the most heartbreaking things that I ever saw when I was in grad school, when I was working in a, in a hospital, was there was a child in the hospital who had been very severely abused by the mom, was in the hospital for injuries sustained when the mom went into a rage And was having like multiple surgeries, living on a unit of the hospital. And I was the psychology intern who was working with this kid on play therapy, working on the basics of emotional regulation, things like that. And all this kid wanted was her mom. Like that's all she was crying for. She just wanted her mommy, the mommy who beat her within an inch of her life and put her in the hospital it was one of the most tragic things i remember whenever i would finish a session with this kid and we weren't necessarily talking about what had happened to her right we're doing therapy with a small child we're, we're playing we're learning about our feelings we're you know having a lot in many ways a lot of fun healing attentive experiences so the session itself wasn't necessarily heavy it's not like i'm talking to a 35 year old who's remembering when their parent beat them as a child this is a little kid right so the session itself might not have been all that intense. But walking away from that ward, thinking about that kid, I had so much processing to do, so much thinking to do. It felt so heavy. It also felt in some ways so sacred to know that an attachment figure is so important in a child's life, right? I was an attachment figure to my own children as I was providing this treatment, right? that the attachment system is so robust that even a harmful mother is what the child desires, right? Important to know that. And remember that it's really hard as a parent to screw up attachment in the sense that I have so many people saying, my internal working model is broken. I don't know how to provide attachment. I never felt attachment. I don't know what attachment is. Your baby's brain is primed to attach to you. And you are primed to attach to your baby. You don't have to force it. You don't have to like worry that there's some secret that people who were parented well know, people who are parented properly, like know this special secret sequence of buttons to like press on their baby, the secret code, like the cheat code that allows them access to a better level. Systems are already there. You don't have to do anything to activate it other than the things you naturally want to do. Feed the child, hold the child, speak to the child, sing to the child, rock the child, change them, bathe them, care for them. Those are the things you have to do to a baby. The fact that you're coming and changing his diaper and speaking soothingly with like some music in your voice saying like, it's okay, mommy's here. That's all it is. It's not more complicated than that. It's not some secret skill or technique that people who were parented differently know. So if you didn't know that, now you know it. Those basics of providing care, speaking soothingly, rocking what Dr. Harvey Karp in his book, The Happiest Baby, calls the five S's, providing those experiences to your baby, soothing, sucking, right? Those, just all of those experiences, that's what you have to do. Babies are essentially biological creatures when they're born. So it's not like you have to like be reading a specific picture book at a specific time in their psychological development in order to unlock the next level of attachment. Being predictable, coming when they cry, changing them, bathing them, hugging them, talking to them singing to them, speaking in that motherese that just naturally comes to us, that creates attachment. There's nothing more complicated than that. Remember that our attachment template is also our relationship template. It's our template for understanding the world we live in. It's our template for understanding ourselves. Humans were created to be social creatures. In babyhood, that's about staying alive. Then it's about staying safe, then it's about preserving the larger amount of the baby's brain function for things that aren't survival meaning that when you go to kindergarten there's so many things you could be learning about the world there's so much right even forget kindergarten when you're two when you're just like roaming around your house what happens if i drop this what happens if i lift this up what happens if i taste this what happens if i fall off this what happens if i bang this against that If my brain is free to only be thinking about, oh my gosh, this cool world that I live in, so many things I can learn about this cool world, then I have this brain that I can use for all those functions because I don't have to think about, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I alive? Am I alive? Am I alive? Am I in danger? Am I in danger? Am I in danger? I have room in my brain to think about, I dropped this red cup of this blue platform, what happens? If I bang this toy into the wall, what happens? If I say a sound that sounds like, ma, will my mother come running and her, light will, her face will light up and she'll say, oh my gosh, you're saying mama, let's see if I can do that again, right? That is what starts creating my template for learning, for being curious The baby needs to be able to focus on the joy of learning how to make a mess, being creative, trying new things, making new friends, instead of stay alive, stay alive, stay alive, stay alive. So do you see how trauma can interfere with even the most secure attachment? Even if you've had the most secure attachment, you were parented so properly and your attachment was secure and everything was great, and then a trauma happens you see how suddenly the stay alive, stay alive, stay alive function in your brain starts overriding the let's be joyful, let's be curious, let's explore, let's try new things? Because again, anything that's survival related is inherently noxious. For babies, it's about staying alive. In adulthood, it's about having a few other people that are special to us, that we connect to, that make us feel safe. It's about having that life that's worth living. Right? Our attachment system teaches us what love feels like. Right, Does love feel stable, stable and secure? Do I feel lovable? Does love feel highly contingent and dependent? Does love feel very unpredictable and dangerous? Does love feel like the worst thing ever in the world because right after I get love, I get hurt? Does love feel like someone who's always ignoring me and telling me how worthless I am and how annoying I am? Because that's going to tell me a lot about what kind of relationships I'm willing to have when I become an adult. At its core, attachment is three things it's neurobiological, our brains are designed to attach to our babies, it's reciprocal, our infants' brains are designed to attach to us. And it's influential, right? We said the experience of attachment underlies our ability to psychologically function in the world. Now, here's the thing. Not a lot of people know this, but when we talk about John Bowlby, Bowlby himself and probably a lot of attachment theorists did not experience good attachment. In fact, when Bowlby was talking about his experience in upper class British boarding schools, he said that he wouldn't allow a dog he liked to experience the kind of education that he had with respect and, you know, to dogs everywhere, right? With apologies to dogs everywhere, right? Meaning Bowlby felt that his upbringing in a British boarding school was cruel, unpredictable, punishing, and harsh. And Probably because he was raised by upper class parents in the Victorian era where, you know, the children were raised by a nanny. The parents, you know, lived downstairs and they would visit the nursery. You know, the mother would visit the nursery like once a day at tea time. Other than that, she wouldn't really see her kids. The father was away at work doing important father things, right? Um, John Bowlby's father was a respected surgeon, so... There wasn't a ton of attachment to the parental figures. And then John Bowlby actually had a nanny that he very much loved, like a nursemaid. But when he was, I think it was either four or six, she was sent away because he was too big to need a nanny. He was going off to boarding school. And he mourned for her, he said, as if he was mourning for a mother, because she was basically a mother figure, right? She was probably some country girl who came to work in a big, important family's house, And she just did what came natural. She was kind and soothing to a little boy. And he attached to her as children will, but eventually she left because she was an employee. And Bowlby really remembered losing her as a loss, as the kind of loss a child would feel when their mother dies. Back then, Bowlby's parents would have probably thought comforting him when the nursemaid went away would be sentimentality or coddling, like... You have to have that classic stiff upper lip that the British had, right? So they wouldn't have necessarily even in those days, they didn't necessarily even believe that when a baby was crying, they were necessarily in pain. They thought they had immature nervous systems that just cried sometimes. Like it wasn't a meaningful signal of anything. It was just a noise babies make. They would have thought that if you... Coddle a baby for you know, being taken away from their nursemaid, that would be coddling, right? That would spoil the baby with too much attention. And newsflash, comforting a crying child doesn't spoil the child. Just in case we weren't aware of that, now we know. So as fascinating as this history lesson is, why are we discussing it? Do we really need the backstory of John Bowlby's life? I think it's important to think about this. John Bowlby's the father of attachment theory. He described it so clearly. He understood it so well. He is creating the map for us to make sure that our, enhance our attachment, make sure it's great. Yet he didn't experience it himself. So that myth that those who didn't experience good attachment cannot provide attachment, you cannot love your baby unless you love yourself first. Please, that's a myth. You, anything can either be natural. The template can be pre-installed or it can be earned. It can be learned. The whole function of psychotherapy is learning psychological capacities we didn't have. So please, for people who have heard these myths, if you didn't experience good attachment, you can't provide it. If you don't love yourself, you cannot love your child. Completely untrue. You can always provide attachment experiences even if you don't have the template. Think about it this way. Sometimes A template is pre-installed let's say today actually i went to update my payment information to zoom so i could record this episode and my the credit card they had on file had expired so i had to open my wallet take out a different credit card and input a whole new credit card into the system is it easier when the template is pre-installed sure i don't even get notified by zoom they just charge my card but When the template's not pre-installed, you got to manually install it. Manually installing it is called learning. We always can learn. If Bowlby could learn so much about attachment despite never having having experienced it, if he could learn so much about the inner world of a child despite being educated and being a professional in years that people believe children did not have inner worlds, then anybody can learn about attachment anybody can fix attachment. Yes, it's likely that if you experience poor attachment in childhood, it's impacting you. It's true. Growing up in a traumatic, chaotic, overwhelmed household likely contributes to your anxiety today. It likely contributes to your feelings of not being good enough, of not being capable of being a good parent, of constantly being unsure and thinking that other people are doing it better, right? That self-doubt. Very likely it contributed to that that template may not be pre-installed, but that doesn't mean you can't learn it. And sure, there are certain things that people who experience good attachment know. There are certain instincts, like knowing how to read a book to a child, how fast or slow, how much music to inject into your voice, instinctively knowing how to soothe a child, what's too much stimulation, what's not enough stimulation. Even those simple ideas of how to like run a household productively, how to like organize your time, those types of like, there's a lot of minutia when it comes to running a family. And of course, mothers tend to have that mental load of like that invisible load of carrying the family, like knowing how clean is clean enough, right? How to like organize the meals of the week so that the kids are eating reasonable foods at reasonable times, right? There's a lot of like minutia of running a family that when you saw a family run well, you simply know how to do because you're like, oh, you know, Tuesday night is taco night. You know, oh, before bedtime, we read three stories. Oh, you know, kids need reminders for this or this is important, this is not. When you don't have that, yeah, it's much more effortful. It's effortful to learn how to read a book to a child When you don't know how. One of the big reasons why I do Dr. K Story Club on Instagram, which I pause every so often and then I restart every so often, is to model how one reads a book to a child and how one discusses the book with the child afterwards. I was teaching a parenting class and one of the things we were talking about was how to play with a child, how to read to a child. And there were so many parents who didn't know that sometimes we discuss the book afterwards. So like, what do you think about what the cat in the hat did. You know, at the end of the cat in the hat where the cat leaves and the mother says, so what did you two do all day? And the, and Sally and I, because I is not named in the book, look at each other and they say, I don't know, what would you do if your mother asked you? And it ends, it's a great hook to end the book, but it's also an opening to a conversation to say to the child, so what would you do? To ask a child how they feel about the decisions the characters made in the story, what their favorite part of the story is, what they imagine tomorrow will be like for that character. There's many ways to read a story to a child. How fast should you speak? How slow should you speak? Should you read every single word in the story? When I read a book to my two-year-old. I don't actually necessarily read the books, the words in the book, like newsflash and no disrespect to the authors. Sometimes we're just looking at a page. We, he loves the llama, llama books. And sometimes we just look at a page and he points to the llama and he goes, llama. And I say, yes, llama. And then he points to the backpack and he says, Backpack. And I say, backpack, you have a backpack. Your backpack is yellow. This one is blue. And then he points to the teacher in the picture where recently we're reading Llama Llama back to school. And he goes, teacher. And I say, right, that teacher is a zebra. And that's how we read a book to a two-year-old. It's an interactive experience. He is not sitting for me to read it word for word. I remember doing that once And I had a relative over who didn't experience great attachment as a child. And she's like, aren't you cheating? Like, you're allowed to read a book to a kid without reading the book to the kid. Isn't it like for his brain development, good for him to hear the story? It could be. And it also could be fun to connect over a book without actually reading the words. So sometimes not having experienced it, we don't have that like shorthand and that code for exactly how to do it. The template isn't pre-installed. We can manually install the template. We absolutely can. I, this podcast episode is for everybody who didn't experience it and feel so irretrievably broken to understand that what can be learned can be unlearned. What can be learned can be relearned. We can always do that. I love the term parental ventriloquism. It's when we open our mouths to say something and our mother's voice comes out, right? And sometimes when that Parental ventriloquism is bad words, like it's what I don't want to say. Yeah, it's harder because I have to stop myself from saying what comes naturally and say something attachment-focused instead, but that doesn't mean I can't do that. Okay, so we don't have that template installed necessarily. So that internal working model, that compass for how to provide attachment is altered in some way, just has to be repaired. Remember that our brains are naturally drawn to what feels familiar. But when we know that what feels familiar isn't healthy, then we have to simply create a new familiar. And we know that a certain amount of repetition creates new templates in the brain, right? That's that idea of like 10,000 hours versus 3,000 hours to create mastery. So maybe the first time, You know, we go to the baby and we're providing an attachment experience and we're handling it right. We're speaking with music in our voice. We're rocking them. We're soothing them. It feels unnatural. But I have news for you. Time 10,000 is coming pretty quickly because babies cry and have needs 200 times a day, right? And so do toddlers and so do early elementary school children and so do middle school children and so do high school children. 10,000 hours, not that far away, right? Every one interaction at a time. We can rewire our brains to fix this. Now, keep in mind also, another very important thing is don't assume that when you see that parent with the quote unquote well-behaved kids, that the kids are quote unquote well-behaved because they had good attachment. Could be they have such anxious attachment that they would never dare misbehave, kind of hate that word. Everything a human does is behavior. Humans either behave or are dead, right? But anything that child does does not necessarily mean that attachment is good or bad. You can see some really good kids, right? Those kids that are like, oh, they're so well-behaved. It's such a good reflection on their parents and feel the sense of despair. Like, I did not provide my kids good attachment. Look at how wild they are. Look at how needy they are. Look at how clingy they are. Your child sees you as an attachment figure and keeps coming to you for help, for advice, for support. Your child feels safe to be exuberant and loud in your presence. Your child can be demanding and whiny and needy because you're safe. That is a very good thing. Now, those quote-unquote well-behaved children, sure, those well-behaved children might indeed have good attachment and also have easy temperaments and also have relatively unchallenged, privileged lives, and they exhibit good behavior because... That's the behavior that's open for them to exhibit. And that's great. And that's lovely. And it could be that they are so frozen in fear and anxiously attached that they wouldn't dare act out because they know that the relationship with the mother is so fragile. So don't necessarily posit that you're doing something wrong if your kids are clingy or your kids are needy and that in some ways you've undone their attachment. Your attachment is not good. Because we said a kid's behavior isn't necessarily an indicator of attachment yet, right? It's adult behavior that we have to talk about. A parent's behavior in response to the child's clinginess or neediness, that tells us about attachment. When the kid falls down, what does mom do? One of the things that terrifies me, you know, recently on TikTok, there was this egg crack challenge trend where parents were, you know, saying that saying to a toddler, let's be cookies together and the kid's all excited. He's leaning into the bowl and they're putting in the flour and the sugar. And then the mom says, okay, time for the eggs. And then the mom cracks the egg on the side of the kid's head. And it's meant, I I guess, to be funny. The idea that the kid is startled, right? It doesn't hurt when someone cracks an egg on your head, but it's startling. And then they're filming those reactions for TikTok and YouTube and Instagram. And the idea that this is somehow a prank and it's fun and it's funny. But if you think about it, The child was just in a state of attunement. They were feeling attached to the mother. The mother was attached to them. They were having a learning experience. They were exploring. It's natural for a child's brain to learn about the world from mom. So the child's brain is as receptive as it can be. And that's creating the template for what learning means. Being attuned to another person means sharing delight with another person, right? That's the template. Then mom cracks the egg on the kid's head and the kid is jarred out of that. Now, a measure of attachment is what the mom does in that moment. When the kid is scared and starts to cry, does the mom continue to look into the camera and wink and, and you know document the reaction for TikTok? That's going to tell me something about attachment. Does the mom like drop her phone and run to the kid and say, oh my gosh, you were scared. I'm so sorry. I did not mean to scare you, right? Does the mom say, oh, you got scared. I'm sorry. I don't want you to be scared. It's okay. Mommy's here. That's going to tell me something about attachment. The child's reaction, whether the child yells at mom and throws an egg at her, whether the mom starts, the child starts to cry or whether the child bursts out laughing. That might tell me something about their stress response. It's not going to tell me that much about their attachment, but how mom responds, that's going to tell me about attachment. When the kid gets off the bus and says, My teacher hates me, I'm never going back to school, that doesn't tell me anything about attachment. When mom says, Come inside, let's talk about it here, have a drink right? That's going to tell me something about attachment. It's the parent's behavior that tells me about attachment. The child's behavior doesn't necessarily. tell tells me something about stress response. Also, the child who bursts out laughing when the egg is cracked on their head, it's probably a lot older, right? An 11-year-old, a 15-year-old might get the joke and be in on the joke and like pranks. I don't know that there are many toddlers who would burst out laughing. And I've seen this egg crack challenge with children as young as three, and it just breaks my heart every time. So practically speaking, what do we do? If we want our children to experience good attachment, we need to pay attention to the building blocks of attachment, okay? The building blocks of attachment are experiences like attunement. You are paying focused attention to me and I am paying focused attention to you. It almost feels like our brain waves are syncing up. We're on the same wavelength. You might have that experience when you and your toddler are playing on the floor. You might have that experience when you're doing bedtime and you're cuddling. You might have that experience when you're doing something collaborative like baking with your child and like, newsflash, not cracking an egg on their head, right? So you might have that experience where like, we just feel like we're we're in sync. We're, We're on the same page. We're totally tuned into one another. So don't worry about, does my kid have good attachment? Worry about what experience of attunement did I have with my kid today? My kid loves puzzles. I'm doing a puzzle with them. My kid loves to bake. My kid wants, for me, I very often do schmoozy walks with my kids. I am ADHD by nature. I certainly have passed my need for movement and stimulation onto my children. So Going on a schmoozing walk where we walk around the block and as we're walking, we're talking, we walk towards the playground and we're having a conversation as we're doing that, just alone time, me and mom, that provides that attunement experience. We're dialed in. Maybe we're baking together. Maybe we're painting together. We're doing some attunement experience. Doesn't matter which one. your kid's not the kind of kid like my kid who when i read him a book we don't actually read the words of the book that's an attunement experience i get what level of stimulation you want and you're getting that level of stimulation from me focus on attunement experiences another big hallmark of attachment is delight that i look upon you with delight like what a magnificent creature you are and you look at me with delight this comes from otto kernberg that like wow you, mom, are wonderful, and I'm part of you, right? That mutual delight, like mutual admiration society. How are we having that? What did I tell my child I love about them today? What did I notice my child doing well and compliment today? What did I tell my child I really value about them today, right? And that can be a second, and that can be a long conversation, and that can be a little note that I put in their in their backpack. I noticed how kind you were to your little brother this morning, right? And Right, but that delight experience, I delight in you, you delight in my delight in you, right? We delight in each other. Did I make sure that there was a delight experience with my child today? Boom, I just provided attachment. A lot of attachment comes from reciprocal movement, moving together. Am I rocking the child? Am I singing? Am I speaking with music and joy in my voice to that child? And again, that could be for five seconds. Hi, I'm home, right? That that just that back and forth, moving together. And moving together doesn't have to be dancing. Moving together doesn't have to be rocking. You're not rocking your 15-year-old but you may go on a walk with them. You may sit on a porch swing and swing back and forth. You may work together. Like we're cleaning the kitchen together and we're like sort of moving in sync. We're both like scrubbing a counter at the same time. That feeling of another human mimicking my voice, my tone of voice, my body posture, you're sitting leaning forward. So I'm leaning forward to match you. You're talking fast. So I'm answering you. First fast, and then I'm slowing to show you that I want it to be calm. You are speaking with excitement in your voice. So I'm responding with excitement. Mom, guess what? We did science today. Really? What you do in science? Right? So I'm matching your emotional state. I'm so bad at math. I stink. Oh, math was so hard today. What happened? Right? So we're matching each other because that reciprocal movement with, that reciprocal tonality of voice that's an attachment experience. There are all sorts of motivational speakers and um, speaking coaches that will talk about matching, that like when you go into a new room and you're meeting a new person, one of the things you can do is like match their body posture, right? So if they're leaning forward, you lean forward, and that makes people unconsciously like you, right? We do the same thing with our kids. I'm going to match your posture. I'm going to match your tone of voice. I'm gonna match your tone of voice and then tone it down. I'm so mad at my sister. You're so frustrated right now. What did what did she do? Right. And we're so we're varying it. Those are ways of building attachment. It's not that much harder than that. Yeah, sure, we we will have as post-traumatic parents those things that we want to not do. Those are obvious. I'm not gonna say the obvious ones, like, hey, don't crack an egg on your kid's head like, hey, don't beat your kid. Don't stub out a cigarette on them. You know, like those are the things that like, no kidding, like we know. Don't be unpredictable. If you're going to choose an alternative caregiver for your child, make sure it's a predictable, caring, attuned person. So don't beat yourself up about like, oh my gosh, my kid has to be in daycare because I work and and, and there are moms who don't have to work and I'm interfering with their attachment patterns forever. I chose the daycare that I'm comfortable with. I chose a daycare that has highly attentive, attuned caregivers. I'm in touch with the caregivers. I check in on them nowadays with technology. It's easier and easier to do that. I talk to my kids' teachers. I talk to my co-parent. I talk to parenting partners. I am giving my child Care over to adults that I trust to be predictable and stable. When an adult is not predictable and stable, I minimize my kids' contact with them. Those are the things to focus on, not the beating ourselves up as post traumatic parents with shame and guilt when we have to inevitably have a separation. And when our child protests separation, I think we always want to take that seriously. If a child's protesting a separation, we always want to have the alternative hypothesis that it's not separation anxiety and it's not insecurity that we've given them, that maybe something's going wrong in the environment we're sending them to. So we always want to keep our eyes open to that because like maybe it's separation anxiety and maybe something really bad's happening in daycare, which is why I like daycares that are transparent, that are open, that allow parents to come in at any time, that have cameras so I know what's going on. So we always want to keep our, you know, remember, attachment system is survival system. We want to keep our eyes open for that. And we don't want to have those internal voices of guilt and shame of, oh, my gosh, I did something wrong. My kid doesn't want to go to kindergarten. Kid doesn't want to go to kindergarten because we don't like being separated from our attachment figures. And there's this hypothesis something could be going wrong in kindergarten. And there's this hypothesis that they have a more sensitive temperament and it's too overwhelming and we can help them through that. immediate voice of self-doubt, of shame, of blame that we have, that we're doing attachment all wrong. No, because even if we do it wrong, we can fix it. If we become attuned, if we become more attentive and we focus on the predictability, on the soothing, on the rituals, I would so much rather sort of peanut butter and jelly for dinner at the same time that's a predictable time then be making gourmet meals but you know dinner's delayed because I'm stressed out because I'm deboning a duck right so let's remember that attachment is very much repairable and very much learnable right and this is just that overview but for those of us who are feeling like we'll never get there we didn't experience it So therefore, we can't give it. That's just simply not true. If Bowlby, who didn't experience great attachment, can provide, can teach us about how to provide good attachment, then we can learn it too. Thank you so much for your attention on this episode. As always, I would love to hear your feedback, your questions, whether you want an installment two on this topic to talk more about how we can enhance attachment with our kids. Please DM me on Instagram because that's where the post-traumatic parenting community hangs out. You can also check out our new YouTube channel, which is called Post Traumatic Parenting. You can find it on YouTube, wherever you find YouTube videos, And also, please check out the Post Traumatic Parenting Community's new Insider Broadcast channel on Instagram, where we do a deeper dive into some of the posts. And as always, I love hearing your feedback about the Post Traumatic Parenting, my particular blog on Psychology Today, which is called Targeted Parenting. I try to upload new blog posts weekly. So there are a lot of ways to contact me. For any feedback or comments about this episode, please DM me on Instagram. Can't wait to hear your feedback on this. I'm here on social media to be descriptive, not prescriptive. I'm here to educate, inform, and hopefully entertain, but never to treat. If listening to this podcast helps you realize that you need therapy, I am all for that. But podcasts aren't therapy please reach out to a mental health professional licensed in your jurisdiction. You'll be glad you did. Wish post-traumatic parenting was a talk show, not a podcast. you have a question for me or for my guests? Great news. You can ask those questions by following me on Instagram. My handle is at Dr. Psychology. It's also in the show notes. I love it when people reach out, DM, or post a question. Who knows? Your question might spark an entire episode. Come join our community. We get it, we're post-traumatic parents too. Can't wait to hear from you.